Hello and welcome to the Dry Bones Ministries podcast. My name is Father Adam Potter, and I'd like to offer to all of you a special Holy Week edition of a Lenten retreat. Uh, it's a retreat that I've put together at this last Lent, being asked to go and visit and talk to uh, a couple different parishes. And the title of this three-part mission is called Beggars at the Foot of the Cross. And would just wanted to share it with you and to give you all a, a chance to enter in, if it can be of benefit to you at, at this time or, or any time, then I, I thank God. It's come from um, a lot of time and prayer and just kind of seeing where I'm at and needing to recognize my own spiritual poverty and where a lot of us are at and really rejecting a real radical dependency on God. So it's a three-part series. Here's the first one that I offer you today, and pray that this can bear great fruit in your own life. And sinful and sorrowful, O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, and thy mercy hear and answer them. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. I'm thrilled to be with you all this holy, holy season of Lent where the church every single year invites us out into the desert, into the wilderness, to be with Jesus Christ for 40 days, to pray, to fast, and to give alms, and to open ourselves up to that test, to the test of the evil one, so that our faith and our love might be purified. And I'm just so grateful to be with you. Father Conway, thanks for inviting me here. I hope you don't regret inviting me here for these... (laughs) Three days, we, yeah, we got really close over in Rome, studying together. That experience just really can bring guys together. And so grateful just with all the conversations, all the moments of prayer, and just, yeah, coming to really fall in love more with the Lord through him and through him and his faith and the way that he's integrated into his, his own life. So you guys are so blessed. Not only do you have Father Conway here, but Father Jungi is just, you guys have great priests. So yeah, I'm a little envious just to appreciate. Beautiful, beautiful thing, beautiful thing. So I was thinking about the best way to to introduce myself, and I guess I have three nights, so maybe just a little bit each night, but first I just think I have to start off by saying, I love being a priest. Being a priest is an incredible vocation, and it's just, it's awesome. So I don't know, I was thinking about like what moments to be able to share with you. There was one just a couple weeks ago, I was giving a talk to a bunch of high school boys, and I was kind of getting ready to call them to the battle, to call them to embrace the spiritual life. And before I got started, there was this young man in the first row who raised his head, hand and said, Father Adam? Like, yep, that's me. He's like, sorry, this is going to sound really weird, but did you marry my sister? I said, that did sound really weird. <laughs> I said, it depends. Who's your sister? And he went on to describe, oh, my sister, um, yeah, I think it was at St. John of Paul last July. It's like, yes, I did marry your sister to her now husband. And it was amazing. <laughs> right? <laughs> and there he was. Right? So like, like, I didn't know him at the time, but here I was, just a priest, coming crashing into this young man's life that in some way I made an impression on him, that he would remember me and then feel comfortable to ask that awkward, awkward question. <laughs> I have a, a grade school right now, and so I played basketball for my high school days, even Division Three college basketball, so I love being able to go over and play with the middle schoolers. If I ever need an ego boost, I just go and play with the... Mi- 
middle school boys and girls, and they're just in awe. It's like, it doesn't take much to impress the kids, but if I want another ego boost, I go down to the kindergartners. They call me God. They call me God. Yes, children. <laughs> How tall are you? Six foot five. How old are you? Before Abraham was, I am. No more questions, no more questions. I love being a priest, though, I really do. It's incredible. So two years ago, I was the chaplain at this all-girls Catholic school in the city of Pittsburgh, which was a little bit intimidating because girls were intimidating whenever I was in high school, and so here I am coming back. And it was amazing because I got a chance whenever I was at this school to live up to my family's name. We're potters. We're potters. And I had an invitation from the art teacher to come into their section on pottery. I was like, yes, this is it. Like, this is my, I cannot just imagine, right? Like, my family came here probably from, uh, from England coming over. And whenever they got to the United States, we're just asked, so what do you do? Like, we're potters. Yes, you are. You're potters. So here I am thinking like, yes, this is a chance for me to live up to my namesake and to get in there. And I was so excited. And I was there with a, a couple high school girls just like, this is going to be good. And I'm thinking, like, this is going to be really good because here I am. I was made for this. I was born for this. And I got this big clump of clay. I don't know if you, how many of you have gone on the pottery wheel. This is like my first time, okay? It's my first time. And I get the clump of clay. I get out the water. You got to wet it. And your first task is to get it centered on the wheel because if you don't get the clay centered on the wheel, then you're not going to be able to form it, mold it, and actually carve out the middle to get the bowl. And so, friends, I spent the whole 30-minute period of that class just trying to get it centered on the wheel. It was ugly, because you have to speed it up to be able to get the rotation going to get it centered, but the more that you spin it, the faster it goes, the more the water sprays everywhere. So you have to like judge that, and so there's water and clay spreading everywhere, and then it, all of a sudden it gets dry, and then I'm burning my hands just trying to force it in there, and it was just so ugly. I have an incredible name. I didn't quite live up to it. Do you know my first name is Adam? Which is, doesn't just mean man, man, but actually means dirt. But it means dirt, like because God formed the first man, Adam, out of the dirt, out of the earth. And it was his life that he breathed into man, into the clay of the earth, and gave him life. And I was just thinking about that so often. Do my parents have any idea? Here I am, like, who's the, who's the potter? Not me. <laughs> the real potter is God. If you ever read Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 5, he says very clearly, I am the potter, and you, Israel, are the clay. Just think about that, right? Because I was going in, I just so want it, and I do this with God all the time. I want to be the potter, and I want him to be the clay. I want to tell him what I want, and I want him to be able to just respond. And he continues to bring me back. You're the clay. I'm the potter. Friends, all analogies fall short, but I just wonder if this Lent, you and I are invited to the potter's wheel. Because maybe like me, it's easy to come in with some misconceptions that we're the sculptors, that we come into Lent and we're the ones who are in control, we're the ones who are setting the parameters, we're the ones who are setting, how am I going to pray, how am I going to fast, how am I going to give alms? And all of a sudden we think, yes, 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 and then once I get to the end of Lent, I'll be able to prove myself before God, look, I'm not actually addicted to technology or media. If only we would take up that challenge, right? And yet, if we go into Lent thinking this is about me proving myself before God, we've got it backwards. We've got it backwards. And I just wonder if maybe the Lord's inviting us to greater openness and docility to be moist, malleable clay. 
that's docile to the Holy Spirit to be formed as he wants us to be formed. Maybe another misconception is that we're ready to be shaped, that we're ready to be molded, and maybe you and I need to come tonight with a little more humility and just realize, I just need to get centered. I just need to get right centered in that, in that wheel. Because maybe if we're honest, we can say, I have drifted. Christ is not the center of my life. There are a lot of other things, a lot of other idols that come and fill in, and then all of a sudden, my whole life is thrown off, and I'm just wondering why, I'm wondering why, I'm wondering why. And it's because Christ isn't actually at the center, because if we are centered in him, then he allows us to experience the fullness of life, and this is where we can actually thrive. So this is truly at the heart of my talk and what I want to invite all of us to. The title of this talk is called Beggars at the Cross, it has everything to do with the fact that we're not in control. As much as we try and seek and strive for security, for control, for knowing exactly what's going to happen in my life from now until the day that I breathe my last, we're not. And so to live more and more in that poverty and that spirit of dependence all of a sudden opens us up to the reality of the relationship that God desires us to have. So for the next three days, I want to talk about being beggars at the cross. It comes from a lot of my own struggle, trying to seek out my own control, my own life, living according to my own desires, my own plans, and the Lord just gently, gently bringing me back to him. And so to live out that, right, it's not easy, but I guess in the, the three days, tonight I just want to introduce the idea. What does it mean to be poor? What does it mean to be dependent? What does it mean to really live that out? And I'm going to do it through the very structure of Lent and propose that every Lent the Lord invites us to this very ideal of poverty. Tomorrow night we're going to move from the idea of being poor to the cross. And we might experience his mercy and understand that even more as begging for his mercy. And then finally, Wednesday, I want to conclude with how this disposition opens us up now to be filled by the Eucharist. So you're ready. Let's talk about being poor. This is probably one of the most uncomfortable things that we can think about, and yet it has everything to do with just who we are. And you just imagine that most of us spend most of our lives trying to avoid this reality of how poor we... Do you know what I mean by being poor? I don't mean monetarily poor. I mean like existentially, I mean substantially poor, that every single one of us, just because we are human, means that we're subjected to being limited. Only Padre Pio is able to be in more place than once. Every single one of us have to be at one place at one time, and even that's hard for us, right? With our phones, we have this idea that we can be in all these different, no, 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 just one place, and, one, and even that's hard, right? Because my mind is often distracted, and I can't focus on the very person that I want to be focused to. I'm weak, and I'm actually like, gosh, if only I could really listen to you the way that I want to listen to you. If only I could love you the way that I really want to love you. And then all of a sudden, I get hungry, and I need to eat. And then all of a sudden, I get tired, and I have to sleep. And then all of a sudden, I have to use the restroom. It's like all these things actually go to reveal to us we're not superhuman. We're very human and therefore limited and weak. And so I just wonder if we cover it up with all sorts of relationships, jobs, awards, successes, money, investment plans, retirement plans, expensive homes, nice reliable cars, healthy diets, exercise plans, and Botox. <laughs> 
all to avoid this reality that we're poor. We're poor, that like this reality is we're not made for this world, that we all get weak, that we all start slowing down, things start breaking down, things start talking to us. I didn't know that was there. Like, yeah, that hurts. And then all of a sudden, we come to our last days. No, 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 we're not going to think about that. But we have to, right? So a beggar, what does it mean to be a beggar? It's one that's not just poor, but it's one that actually has come to this place where he can't rely on his own self to provide what he needs. Or maybe he's gotten to the place where he just realizes the best way for me to make it through this life is to ask for help. And it's humiliating, it's embarrassing, it's humbling, it's vulnerable, and it's filled with rejection and judgments from all the people who will walk by, who will drive by, and maybe say it out loud or even to themselves, Maybe if you had worked a little harder, maybe if you had gotten a better job, or maybe if you would have studied harder at school and not partied so much, like whatever it is, right, to realize that you are highly dependent on others to provide for you is not easy or comfortable. It's so uncomfortable that we'll do anything we can to make sure that we never have to be this dependent and needy. Three Christmases ago, I was celebrating Christmas at a city parish in Pittsburgh. And I got done with this beautiful Christmas Mass. It was a 9.30 Mass. It got done at 10.30. And it was just like, the church was filled, right? It was filled with all the joy, all the merriment, all the singing that you would just expect on Christmas morning. And I'm outside greeting the people, seeing them off. And as I get down to with the last person, this gentleman comes up to me. He says, Father, sorry to bother you. I know it's Christmas, but I'm in a rough place right now. I said, tell me about it. Like, what's going on? And he just went on in a few words to describe how his whole life in the, just the last couple weeks had been completely turned upside down. And now all of a sudden he had lost his relationship with his spouse, he had lost his job, didn't have a home, and didn't even have a car. He said, Father, I'd love something to eat, and if better, I'd love for a place to stay. I said, let me close up the church and I'll be right with you. And I come back out kind of like ready in the Christmas spirit, right? Like I'm going to be able to really help this person. Meanwhile, I have no food. All that I have are just boxes of chocolates. Like that's all priests get for Christmas. So I didn't have any, <laughs> I didn't have any actually actual food in my rectory. And I was going home that afternoon to be with my family. We're like, come on, we'll get in my truck and we'll go and we'll find some place. And it took us a little while. So I'm just driving. I'm talking to this man who's just like in the depths of deprivation and dependence and embarrassment. And I just asked, like, what's your name? I said, Father, I'm Dante. Like, Dante, I'm Father Adam. It's like, who are you? What's going on in your life? And he just, he didn't say much, right? He was just, like, very quiet. And I don't know if he's never lived or, like, gone on a car ride with a six-foot-five priest in a cassock or whatever that might have been for him. I don't know. But I just know he was super uncomfortable. And he did everything that I could to try and put him at ease. I want to help you. I want to give you whatever, you whatever it is that I can right now. And so finally we made our way to the other side of Pittsburgh and we got to the homeless shelter and we were able to find there was a, there was a place for him. That afternoon they were, able to, they were going to be able to get him in. He just had to wait for a little bit. And so we got done. I was like, okay, Dante, we got to get you. And there is Dante's like starting to walk off. I'm like, Dante, we still got to get you some food, right? It's like, Father, Father. I'm like, well, we got to get you some food. And so finally we start driving off. He reluctantly... And I'm looking on my phone, and everything's closed, right? Because it's Christmas. And finally, we're driving around, and I said, Father, I need to get out. He's like, Father, I need to get out. Stop the car. It's like, okay. And I pulled off. I'm like, what's going on? And all of a sudden, Dante just broke down in tears. I said, Father, this is really hard. It's really hard to inconvenience you. It's really hard to ask for help. 
and it's really hard just to be here. I think I need to do this on my own. Friends, is it easier to give or to receive? Is it easier to give or to receive? So many of us, right? It's very comfortable to give charity, but it's very hard to receive charity. And I just remember in Dante, I don't even remember if he accepted the money that I gave him. He was just so, like, he was so uncomfortable in that position that he just was ready to be out of the truck and to be on his own, trying to find his own way. And I get that, right? Because I live most of my life like that, just trying to do it my own way. And to ask for help is one of the hardest things. So what about us spiritually, right? The sad story of salvation history is that due to original sin, our entire life is one out of poverty. And I would say the entire story of salvation history could be summarized in God inviting us to actually embrace our poverty and to open our hearts up to receiving his grace, to receiving his mercy. And the story of salvation history goes with the people of Israel saying, no, 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 we got it. No, 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 we got it. And all of a sudden they build themselves up with this empire or this temple or with this army and all of a sudden they get fat and they get comfortable and they fall into grave sin. And the Lord's like, will you trust in me now? It's like, okay, fine. And so the Lord just inviting his people, will you trust in me? Will you surrender yourself to me? Will you allow yourself to be poor so that I can fill you and allow you to come into the fullness of the relationship that I have for you? Friends, how hard is this? Gosh, this is one of the most difficult things. One of the things I have for you all in these days is a powerful novena that's been changing my life. It's called the Surrender Novena. I get no royalties for its distribution, but it's changed my life, and I just wanted to offer it for all of you. I have a bunch in the back and a bunch in the side here that hopefully you all can grab. It's called the Surrender Novena, and it's this idea of surrender that is so abstract, so theoretical. What does it mean to surrender? And the Lord Jesus appeared to this priest, this Italian priest in the 19th, 20th century, and he told him what surrender means. And so every single day, there's this litany of praying to the Lord, O oh Jesus, I surrender myself to you. Take care of everything. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, Jesus, I surrender myself to you. Take care of everything. And it's that last part, right? That like that where the, that's where the meat comes in. That's where, oh, that's what surrender means. Take care of everything, which means that, Lord, if you're going to take care of everything, that means that I actually have to let go. I have to let go of this relationship. I have to let go of these plans. I have to let go of my own prerogatives and actually allow you room to be able to come in and work in my life. This novena has turned into another novena and another novena in my own life because the Lord just continues to teach me how much I need to actually let go and be poor and to really trust in him in all things. This talk tonight and this week is really inspired by St. Augustine. I don't know how many of you have read his Confessions. It's one of the most beautiful books and there's this one scene where St. Augustine, if you know how he writes the Confessions, he writes it as a prayer. It's an autobiography, but he writes it as a prayer to the Lord. And so here Augustine is looking back at his life in one of the times when he has everything that the world could offer. He has the education. He has the status. He's climbed in the social status of the entire Italian world. He's up in Milan right now. He has this woman that he's living with that he's not married to. He has a son with her out of wedlock. And here he has everything that the world would want, from the pleasure to the money to the fame. And he comes across a poor person. Here's what he says. I just want to read it because it's so beautiful. I recall how miserable I was 
and how one day you brought me, he's talking to God, you, Lord, brought me to realization of my miserable state. I was preparing to deliver a eulogy upon the emperor in which I would tell plenty of lies with the object of winning the favor with the well-informed by my lying. My heart was, plant, was panting with anxiety and seething with feverish, corruptive thoughts. As I passed through a certain district in Milan, I noticed a poor beggar, drunk, I believe, and making merry. I groaned and pointed out to the friends who were with me how many hardships our idiotic enterprises entailed. Don't we do that? When we see something that's uncomfortable to us, whenever we see something that mirrors back maybe our own poverty or our own misery, all of a sudden we talk to others to justify, no, 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 but, like, but we're really important. We have something a lot going on. So gosh, if only people knew how burdensome my life is. Goaded by greed, he says, I was dragging my load of unhappiness along and feeling it all the heavier for being dragged. Yet while all our efforts were directly solely to the directed solely to the attainment of unclouded joy, it appeared that this beggar had already beaten us to the goal, a goal which we would perhaps never reach ourselves. With the help of few paltry coins he had collected by begging, this man was enjoying the temporal happiness for which I strove so bitter, devious, and roundabout a contrivance. His joy was no true joy, to be sure, but what I was seeking in my ambition was a joy far more unreal. And he was undeniably happy while I was full of foreboding. He was carefree, I apprehensive. If anyone had questioned me as to whether I would rather be exhilarated or afraid, I would of course have replied, exhilarated. But if the questioner had pressed me further, asking whether I preferred to be like the beggar or to be as I was then, I would have chosen to be myself. Can you imagine? I would have chosen to be myself, laden with anxieties and fears. Surely that would have been no right choice, but a perverse one? I could not have preferred my condition to his on the grounds that I was being educated, because the fact was that it was a so not a source for joy, but only the means by which I sought to curry favor with human beings. I was not aiming to teach them, but only to win their favor. There's a lot there, just a couple takeaways, right? St. Augustine, he brings us right to the heart of the rawness of our humanity and just who we are and how we can live out these lies. Notice he's pursuing joy. Joy is his guidepost. Joy is what is leading him. That's what he's pursuing, which brings us to the Lord. If we pursue authentic joy, we will find Jesus Christ. But when he sees the beggar, he's confronted with how far he is from that reality. Is the joy of the beggar, who is drunk with merriment, is it authentic? Well, he says no. He says no. And yet, even the natural joy that this beggar has mirrors back to him the supernatural joy that he knows his heart was made for. When it comes down to the choice, though, right? So who would you rather be, Augustine? This is the Lord speaking in his heart at that moment. Who would you rather be? Would you rather be poor and have that joy? Or continue to live as you are? Living this lie, trying to live with all the things that the world tells you will make you happy and actually being miserable, filled with fear and anxiety. And Augustine at that time says, I'd rather be anxious. 
How many of us say the same thing? How many of us say the exact same thing? You're living in fear. You're living in anxiety. Fear is the thing that is driving your life. All you have to do is actually let go and allow the Lord to take control and to direct you and guide you to bring you to authentic joy and to peace. But you're going to have to let go. You're going to have to let go. right? And how many of us would rather be holding on, thinking that we're the ones in control, than actually to let go and experience that joy? Why is it so hard? This is a good question. Why is it so hard? Why does the beggar stir this up in Augustine? And I think because his poverty was so close to his heart that he realized for him to be poor started with living a life of virtue, integrity, chastity. Do you see what that means? For Augustine to actually be poor, it didn't mean he had to like actually give up every possession that he had to sell all of his money, his house, and everything else. For him to actually be poor... He just had to just start living virtuously. How about don't lie, Augustine? That'd be, a great, that'd be a great start. How about start living chastely? Instead of taking advantage of the woman that you're living with, how about actually start seeing her dignity, her true worth, her true beauty, and respecting that and holding it up? All of a sudden, that will bring you to a poverty where you can actually see a reality outside of your own subjective wants and desires and ambitions. St. Augustine would go on, hopefully as you know, to have this incredible conversion. And in one of his homilies, he says that the true Christian knows himself to be a beggar before God. Friends, do we know ourselves that way? As Christians, to be a beggar before God? How much we need God every single day And as a result, we should feel obliged then to look out for those who are also in need because we recognize just how needy I am. So friends, in the second half of the talk, I want to propose that the church knows what she's doing. Bold proposal. The church knows what she's doing and that every single Lent, she invites us into this poverty, into this dependence, and into this letting go of the things of the world, letting go of sins, letting go of these different habits that keep us from this freedom and authentic joy. And it's through these three pillars of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. So I want to start with prayer. How does prayer invite us to spiritual poverty? Well, I came across this incredible quote in the, one of the reflections of the Magnificat last week and just had to share it with you. It's from blessed Jean-Joseph Lataste. He was a French-Dominican priest who, after preaching a retreat to women in prison, founded the Dominican Sisters of Bethany. So here's what he says about prayer. And just to appreciate, right, that it's not just prayer that he speaks about as a relationship, but he speaks about it from the command that God gives us, Jesus gives us, to pray that God commands us to pray. How often? Once a week on Sunday for one hour. (laughs) How often are we commanded to pray? Every day. Always, right, is the answer. We're commanded to pray always, and then Paul will echo that again to the Thessalonians. So how crazy is that? How radical? I've never appreciated this before. Here's what he says. We are ministers of a God who, in spite of our sins, loves us with a love unequaled here below. A God who pursues you with his undying love, who even now as I speak to you remains invisibly at the door of your heart and uses my words to knock on your door and say to you softly, 
poor child, give me your heart. Do you understand how much love it took God to give his creatures, all of them without exception, the commandment to love him? Think about it like this. You give alms to a beggar in the street. You pray for an assassin who will atone for the crime. Why? Undoubtedly, you love them in some fashion. But do you want to be loved by them? Will you solicit their friendship? Not at all, right? You would never even think of it. And if their friendship were offered, you would perhaps push it away. God does not treat us that way, though. From the greatest souls to the lesser ones, from the noblest souls to the most degraded, he loves all of us and asks us, commands us, to love him. Isn't that incredible? Right? Like, if we think it's hard enough to love our enemies, how much more difficult is it for our enemies to love us in return? Like, so often it's easy, no, 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 I'm going to do you this charity, I'm going to do you this nice thing, this nice word, this act of service, but if they come around and say, hey, you want to go out for a coffee? It's like, oh, no, 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 that, that was just a, <laughs> that was just a, a charity, that was just a, a one-time thing. So here's the reality, right? Like, greater than whatever beggar, Whatever, than, whatever is greater than an assassin, we have done to the Lord. We have done to the Lord, right? And so his great act of charity on the cross to forgive us is uncomprehensible. It's unfathomable, as St. Faustina says. But what's even more crazy is that he commands us to pray. And what does it mean to pray? It doesn't just mean to come and to offer our novenas, offer our litanies, and to offer our rosaries. Nope, check, we said our prayers today. No, prayer at its heart is a relationship with God. It is his opening up of his heart to us, and our responding, opening up our hearts to his. Friends, who would do that? Unless it's one who's so free to be abased and to come into the depths of our depravity, into the fullness of our humanity, and reveal to us just who we are. Friends, how poor are we? Gosh, here's the thing. Lest we think that this is just, I'm poor, I'm no good, or I'm unworthy of anything. No, by God's condescending act of becoming man, of becoming a baby, coming and talking to us, interacting us, desiring us to have a relationship with him, and then dying on a cross, he reminds us, you are poor, but you are mine. You are mine. You are bought with a price greater than gold or silver. You have been bought with the very precious blood of the Lamb that we might realize that. And here's the insight. It's only by being poor that we're free to receive. If we continue to think that, no, 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 I've got my prayer life together, Lord. I've got everything, my family together. I put all my kids through Catholic grade school, Catholic high school, and even Catholic college, right? Like I did all these things and they're successful and I have these grandkids and I have this job or I have this girlfriend or I have this boyfriend. It's like, we're missing the fact that it's all from him anyway. And all the Lord asks is that we would give it back to him so that he can bring it to its fulfillment. Friends, how does poverty, how does prayer bring us to greater poverty? I was thinking about how it calls us to depend on Jesus. Jesus was speaking to this one Benedictine priest and he gave him all these incredible insights into prayer. This is from the book Insinu Yezu, where, the, where Jesus reveals to his priests just how much he wants them to have a relationship with, them, with him in adoration, to refocus again on these two pillars of the Eucharist and adoration and also our Blessed Mother and praying the rosary. 
Sounds like Don Bosco, right? Like, we know this. Sometimes we overcomplicate it. Like, what's going to bring our faith? What's going to bring ourselves and our family back to the Lord? These two pillars of the Eucharist and the Rosary and our Blessed Mother. And as long as we can stay within those two pillars, we find the Lord, we find life, and we find freedom. So he says to this priest, and he says to you and me, to adore me is to demonstrate that all your hope is in me. To adore me is to show me that you count not on yourself, nor on others, but on me alone. How about you? How about me? Do we count on God alone? Or do we count on others? Do we count on ourselves? And how do I know? How do I know is whether or not I actually carve out time to pray every single day. And that can be really hard. I was thinking about this last Sunday whenever I was traveling. I still had a whole lot of packing to do and getting my things together and saying goodbye. And I just had this invitation from the Lord. Come to me in prayer. And I was so tempted to say, Lord, I've got a lot of things going on right now. I've got a flight taking off in just a little bit to Chicago. And I've got to get my things packed and get out the door. And I just heard the Lord say, are you going to rely on yourself to get you to Chicago or on me? On you, on you, on you. So, right? so I went to the chapel and prayed. And here's just this thing, like, like, why is that a struggle? Like, it's with all of us, right? Like, why is hitting that snooze such a struggle? How come when we get to the end of our night, how come just like the closing, the heaviness of our eyelids, why is that su such a struggle? It's because maybe we value ourselves, our own sleep, our own stomachs, our own schedules more than we do Him in that time with Him. When we actually carve out time from every single day, we show by our life, by our actions, that he's more important, that I'm going to actually live in such a way that if Jesus Christ is not real, then my life doesn't make sense. That's crazy, right? Like to live in such a way that I spend so much time in prayer thinking about God, talking about God, that if he's not actually real, I am the biggest fool. But if he is real, all of a sudden my life makes sense and my poverty makes sense and I am reflecting to myself and to everyone else, I'm not living for this world. I'm living for the next, and so I'd rather be a fool in this world and be a saint in heaven. St. Teresa of Calcutta was famous for saying, everyone needs to pray every day for at least 30 minutes. Unless you're really busy, she said. And then you need to pray for a full hour. Have you ever heard that before? Hopefully, or it's a great, what, what does it mean? What's it, what is it all about? It's like 30 minutes a day. Like, is that a lot? It's like, for a lot of us, it is. We're really, really busy. Or sometimes we forget. Like, we're all busy nowadays, right? But here's the thing. The problem is not in our busyness. The problem might be in our prioritization of our life. Like, what's actually most important in my life? Is it the Lord and spending time with Him in that relationship? Or is it even my own self? My job? My family, my children, even these can become idols if we place them above God. So that's prayer. How does it bring us to poverty? Gosh, whenever I come before the Lord, I'm invited to be myself. I'm invited to be myself. And lest I might think that prayer, again, is about listing off my prayers, off my petitions, prayer is a conversation of one heart to another. So to consider in our own invitation to pray as a beggar before the Lord, maybe a good question is this. Who shows up to pray? 
Who shows up to pray? Is it me, as I really am, with everything that's going on in my life? Or is it the ideal me, who has everything together, no anxieties, no stresses, no children out of place, my whole job is okay, everything's good, everything's good, right, God, I'm good, I'm good, you're good too, right? It's like, maybe I'm not good. Like, can I bring that to the Lord? My life is a wreck. My health is disintegrating. I have this doctor's appointment. And then I have this thing going on in this relationship. And then I have this job insecurity. I have no idea what's going to happen next week or next month. I don't know what's going to happen. Does that person show up? Because that's the one that the Lord wants. He truly wants. In a way that he can allow us to come with naked vulnerability. To be seen as we truly are. So that we can be loved in the fullness of who we are. Poverty. Praying with great, great poverty before the Lord. It's beautiful. How about fasting? Gosh, whenever we get to this holy season of Lent, we're invited to fast. So I don't know. For me, it's, it, I, I love appreciating going over to the grade school, asking the kids what they gave up. What'd you give up for Lent? What'd you give up for Lent? And they all have their answers, right? I gave up pop. I gave up chocolate. I gave up homework. It's like... <laughs> Great. I thought that was only my game that I used to play. And it's interesting, right, because we talk about the different things that we give up, that we give up, that then all of a sudden there's this other language that starts coming in that sometimes we talk, we talk about what we're fasting from. That I'm fasting from drinking, fasting from smoking, fasting from dessert, fasting from social media. Do it. You won't regret it. <laughs> Seriously, like, I don't know anyone who, in our 21st century Western world, that, like, if you're not actually going to consider in your own life what your relationship is with technology or social media, I think we're really doing ourselves a disservice. So here's the invitation. I've never met a single person to give up their phone or, like, essential things on their, unessential things on their phone. So like social media or like YouTube or like Netflix or Hulu or whatever else you use to stream all this garbage into your mind and families. I've never met a single person who's given it up and regretted it. Not one. I'd love to be disproven. Someone like, yeah, I really missed out on a lot. The other thing is that I've also never met someone who realized that they actually missed anything that was important. I know someone who gave up uh, they were really into the political scene last 2020, and they gave it up for the, the whole thing. The, and they realized at the very end of Easter, they're still talking about the same thing. <laughs> it's like nothing actually changed. The 24-hour news cycle just regurgitates the same garbage over and over and over again. I found so much peace. I found so much joy not being attached to it. Here's the thing, though. I'm just afraid whenever we start talking about fasting from drinking, fasting from this dessert, or fasting, we're actually forgetting what fasting means. And this is really important because every single first Sunday of Lent, the church gives us the paradigm for this journey is to go out into the desert with Jesus for 40 days where he fasted. And then in this great line from Luke's gospel, at the very end of these 40 days, it says that Jesus was hungry. It's like the greatest understatement in the entire Bible. Like, can you imagine if John at the scene, John chapter 19, where Jesus is on the cross, if you were to say, and he was in a lot of pain. You'd be like, no kidding, right? Like, so Jesus was really hungry. Why? Because he actually gave up food. Friends, what does it mean to fast? I just found this out not too long ago, and it was really annoying. I mean, helpful. To, to be reminded that to fast is the actual abstention 
renunciation of the very substance of food, right? To abstain is to give up a particular type of food. And we know this, right? Because we don't fast from meat on Fridays. We abstain from meat on Fridays, right? And so we don't fast from alcohol in Lent. We abstain from that particular type of drink. Or we don't fast from desserts. We abstain from that particular type of food. So when we talk about fasting, we're actually experiencing a deprivation of a full belly. Isn't that annoying to know? <laughs> Hopefully you do know, right? But this is helpful. Why? So I guess here, like, I was thinking, like, why? So why is fasting such an important thing? Why does the church call us to fast every single Lent? In a lot of ways, I don't know. I'll be honest. I, I, I don't know. But I looked through the scriptures, and I was trying to find, like, so why is fasting such an important thing? Why is it such a powerful thing? And I found that on the one hand, it shows repentance. It shows a repentant heart. Do you know that the Jews on the Day of Atonement would fast from all food and water to repent from their sins? Do you remember when Jonah goes to Nineveh? He goes in there to call them all to conversion, and what he invites them to do is to fast. And for 40 days they fasted to show their repentance, and it was pleasing to God. It also prepares the heart to encounter God. Moses was with the Lord on the top of the mountain for 40 days where he didn't eat or where he didn't drink, but he was able to experience an encounter with the living God. Do you remember Elijah was fasted for 40 days so that he could finally open up his heart to hearing God in the quiet whisper sounds? It also serves as wings to bring our prayers before God. You remember the story of Esther? Her entire people are being persecuted. They're about to be killed. And she calls for a great fast so that she can approach the king. And those, those fasts that all the people of Israel take on bring her prayers like wings up to the Lord so that she can intercede for her people. Ezra proclaims a fast for his people, Israel, so that God would protect them and God listens to them. So we hear this, right? We hear this. And it's especially seen not just in their fullness, but also in their absence. Do you remember in the New Testament whenever Jesus' disciples come back from ministry? And they say, Lord, Lord, how come we can't cast this demon out? And Jesus responds what? Some demons can only be cast out through prayer and fasting. So I don't get it, but it's like spiritual physics. That prayer is good, good, like almost good, but prayer and fasting all of a sudden takes it to another level. Maybe you're like spiritual physics. Father, I didn't even do well in regular physics, right? This is the thing, like, I don't get it, but it, like, it is and it works. St. Basil in the fourth century, he says, you will find that fasting guided all the saints to a godly way of life. Yes, still, if you're like me, you're just wondering, but why food? Why? Like, why food? And I think it has something to do with this. It has something to do with food. is isn't just something that we enjoy, although a lot of us do enjoy food. Food, whenever we consider it, it actually brings us to this very point of survival. Right? That if I don't eat food long enough, like, I'm going to die. Right? And so all of a sudden, to experience a hunger within myself, all of a sudden, in our humanity, there's this sensor that kind of goes off. Right? Like, 
you could die, you could die, you could, maybe it doesn't sound exactly like that, but in the sense, the way that we respond, like, I need to get food, I need to eat, kind of indicates we're really afraid of dying, which isn't all for bad reasons, right? And yet, so why is fasting from food really important? It's because I think whenever we deprive ourselves the very substance of food and actually allow ourselves to feel the emptiness of our belly, we're reminded of our mortality, of our poverty. And so this is why so many of us run from this, right? Like, how many of us in our days revolve around eating? might just be me. Like most of our days revolve around eating, right? Like three square meals a day or maybe four or maybe you just like think about I'm going to work or I'm going to play for this long until this next meal. And maybe even you have like set up in your house or in your car like a little snack cabinet or a snack drawer or a little place. Like just in case you get hungry, you have a place to be able to hold yourself over until that next meal. And then if you're like me, sometimes you just have these unrealistic fears. I remember the first couple times that I tried fasting, getting to the end of the day at night and being hungry. And I had this irrational fear, Adam, if you don't eat, you could die. <laughs> it's like, it was just eight hours, right, through the night or whatever I had. It was just a couple of hours. Yet in my mind, like, I couldn't imagine going to bed hungry. Why, right? Why is this such a hard thing for us? I don't know. Why do we have a new word, hangry? It's like, it's a real thing, like hunger and angry. Put it together and it's like, I'm hangry. This is a real thing. For most of us, whenever we don't have the substance that we need, our sugar levels go down or our proteins go down, and all of a sudden we act out and we're like, that's not me. So why, like, why is this such an uncomfortable place to live and to operate out of? I propose it has everything to do with running away from our poverty. Running away from this idea that it's okay for me to be hungry. I'm not going to die if I deprive myself food for a couple hours. I'm going to be okay. Now here's the thing, right? The church only obliges those who are 18 to 59 to fast. And even still, it's very reasonable with those who are pregnant or those who have different health complications. And so here's the thing, though. For like the church's entire history... She called us to fast for 40 days during Lent. And right now, since 1970, the church has asked us to fast on two days. <laughs> Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. And still for most of us, that's almost too much. And so I would just like to propose once again to all of us the idea of fasting. If you've never experienced the power of prayer before, watch out whenever you start fasting. It actually opens up a deep hunger and a deep awareness of just how much I need the Lord and about how much I need to really depend on Him. If you haven't experienced the power of prayer before, watch out whenever you encounter fasting. And even just to be able to do what the church says, two small meals and one large meal. And if you've thought about just enlarging your normal-sized meal, I've already thought of that. <laughs> Do you know that the church before 1970 actually said the smaller meals were meant to be an eight-ounce snack? Some of you might remember, you might be old enough to remember, in houses there were scales. You would actually weigh out your little snack that had to be no more than eight ounces. Like, that means something, right? Sometimes I wonder, too, how come Jesus, after spending four days, 40 days of fasting in the desert, how come his first words coming out of the desert were not, I need a cheeseburger, real <laughs> quick, or falafel, or whatever there was available. Like, why was the first words out of his mouth not like, I'm so hungry? 
What are the first words out of his mouth? Repent. Repent in Mark's gospel and believe in the gospel. Why? Because fasting all of a sudden opens up for Jesus the very core of his mission. I'm out for souls. I'm out for souls and not to make them feel comfortable or loved or affirmed in everything that they're doing and how they're living. I'm out for souls. It's been said that God loves us just as we are, which is true. But he also loves us just as we are and loves us enough to bring us out of that into an even better place. So friends, in these 40 days, we're invited to fast so that truly we might live, as the scripture says, not from our bellies, but on the food that comes from the very mouth of God. Last one is almsgiving. This one's pretty obvious, but I think sometimes we miss it. Jesus says, when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Notice, Jesus doesn't say, if you give alms. He says, when you give alms. Sometimes still we might think, no, 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 that's for like those who are really called to it. Those who, that's for those who are just like really blessed with a, a lot of wealth. And Jesus says, no, everyone is called to give alms from what you have to those who don't have. St. John Chrysostom in the fourth century said in a homily, it is impossible, though we perform 10,000 other good deeds, to enter the portals of the kingdom without almsgiving. Even Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century said, some are punished eternally for omitting to give alms. That might sound harsh. Like, that sounds, like, sounds a little harsh, Thomas. Like, come on, lighten up or be reasonable. And yet, have you ever read Matthew 25? Like, Jesus has harsh words for those who do not give to the least of these. And whatever you did not do to them, you did not do to me. Or as James says in his letter, chapter 2, 15 to 17, if a brother or sister is ill-clad and in lack of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without actually giving them the things needed for the body, what does it profit? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. I remember the incredible story of St. Martin of Tours. He was a Roman soldier in the first centuries of the church. And, um, and here he was, he was thinking about becoming a Christian. And there he was out for battle and he came back just on his own. He's on his horse and he has these like expensive armor and clothes and everything else. And all of a sudden he comes across a poor person. And it's cold, right? It's in the winter months. And this person barely has a cloak enough to cover his entire body. And it comes across Martin's idea that I should help him. And so I don't know what you would do, right? But here he is, not only with like his armor, but also with his own cloak. But in Martin's mind, it comes across as, it'd be a good idea if I were to take my sword, split my own cloak in two, give half to the poor person, and keep the other half for myself which I always thought was the silliest idea in the world. <laughs> it's like, so now are both of you cold and no one actually has a full cloak to keep them warm? But that's what he did, right? And later that night as he's sleeping, right? Unbaptized, he's not even Christian yet. He has a dream. And that beggar appears to him again in his dream as Jesus with half of his cloak. And he said, Martin, because of you, I had warmth. Because of you, that man was able to know that I loved him. Friends, I think that's the idea of almsgiving. 
right? Because like, why didn't he just give him his cloak so that that man could be good and then he'd, then he'd be cold? Well, he'd be cold for a little bit until he went back to his house and found another cloak, right? So by splitting his own cloak in two, there's a sense where Martin actually entered into the poverty with this beggar, with this poor person, so that he could experience it equally with him. And I think that's the idea, right? That whenever we give, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. To be able to give in a way that isn't just from our surplus wealth, but to give actually in a way that would affect us. Friends, I just want to invite all of us today to consider how the Lord's calling us to be generous. To be generous in how we give in a way that we might even feel a pinch to know it ourselves. As we come to the end of this talk, I just want to bring you back to that pottery wheel. It's what Lent is all about, huh? coming back to be centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. And also more than that, just to be reminded that we are the clay. And we're called, right, not to be hardened, not to be steadfast in our own ways, and our own plans, but actually to our, ourselves to be poor enough to be given over into the plan that the church has for how these 40 days might transform us, might mold us, so that more and more we can move to the very heart of the Father. One of the greatest moments of my really pathetic pottery career was whenever I was able to go back to that art classroom the next day because that pottery was able to be thrown into the kiln. And it was this little nub, right? It was the smallest thing. I just had just so little clay at the end of the class. And it was this little nub, this little bowl. But at the very end, I was able to go in and say, but that one's mine. <laughs> that one's the real We know, Father. We all saw. Like, that, that one's mine. That one's mine. Like, I, did, I poured my heart into it. I gave it everything that I had. And to be able to etch my name into the bottom of it and to claim it as my own. Friends, the Father sees you. The Father sees you. He knows your prayers. He sees when you're fasting, even when no one else sees it. Do it in secret so the Father who sees in secret can reward you in secret. The Father knows whenever you give, even whenever it's out of your poverty, that you give just the little that you have for someone else in need. The Father sees it, and he rejoices in the way that we can actually live out of that poverty in a place of great trust, and even more so, surrender. Oh Jesus, I surrender myself to you. Take care of everything. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for joining us for this retreat called Beggars at the Foot of the Cross. This is the first of a three-part series, and if you enjoy this, then I pray that the next one would be even better, where we take the idea of being beggars at the cross, looking at spiritual poverty in general, and next, we'll look at how being beggars set us up to receive his mercy and to appreciate the joy and the glory of God's mercy. If you'd like to support the, dry, the work of Dry Bones Ministries, please visit drybonespgh.org. Know that I'm praying for you and this mission and this retreat. Please pray for me. God bless you.